This morning we begin a series that will carry us through to the last Sunday of the year on the Minor Prophets. There are 12 of them. We will interrupt for Missions Conference at the end of October. Hope you're planning on that, October 17 and 24. And that leaves us 12 Sundays for 12 Prophets. And this morning we begin with the Prophet Joel. And what I want to do is weave the Scripture reading into the message because... Some of the prophets are short and some of the prophets are long. Joel is short and therefore I want to present the whole thing basically this morning and see what its message is for us today. Joel falls into two halves. The dividing point comes between 227 and 228. In the first half of the book of Joel, which by the way is found on page 786 in your pew Bible if you're hustling around there looking for those three pages, In the first half of the book of Joel, there's a locust plague that came over Israel as a judgment from the Lord. And then, as a result, the people repented for their half-heartedness and God restored their fortunes. That's the first half, up through 2.27. The second half of the book of Joel begins with 2.28 and the prophet lifts his eyes to the future and sees that at some future time there's going to be a great outpouring of the Holy Spirit described in 2.28 following and that then all the nations are going to be gathered together in the valley of Jehoshaphat for judgment. Or to describe the two halves in a different way, in the first half God fights against His people to bring them to give Him honor alone. In the last half of the book, he fights against all the nations who have refused to bring him honor alone. So what I want to do this morning is read with you in a summary way through the whole book, making some comments as we go, and then when we get to the end, go back, focus our attention on the main point of these two sections as they apply to us today. Okay, so let's go to Joel chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. We know almost nothing about this prophet Joel. But that doesn't really matter because it's clear from that one sentence that his intention is to be the mouthpiece of God, not to speak from himself. Then in verses 2 and 3, he says that his message should be passed on for generation after generation, which makes it very fitting that here we are more than 2,500 years later, probably still passing it on. Then in verse 4 begins the description of the catastrophe, the locust plague. What the cutting locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust has left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust has left, the destroying locust has eaten. The results of this locust plague were utterly devastating. It is almost impossible for us to imagine here in the 20th century with our modern ways what it meant when a locust horde attacked Israel. Verse 5, all the wine is cut off from the drunkard's mouth. Verse 7, the fig trees have been splintered. Verse 9, There's not even enough grain for a cereal offering in the temple. And so in verse 13, Joel calls for Israel to cry to the Lord 
because Joel sees in this locust plague a judgment from the Lord. This is no accidental event that has come upon them. It is leading up to the great and terrible day of the Lord. Let's read that. Gird on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because the cereal offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of the Lord your God. And cry to the Lord, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near as destruction from the Almighty comes. That day of the Lord is going to be a repeated theme in this book, so listen for it as we go. Chapter 2 now begins with another warning about this terrible judgment that's coming in the day of the Lord and that this locust horde is the advanced troops or the dawn of this day of the Lord, you might say. It says here in the middle of verse 1, Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. And then in verses 3 through 11 of this second chapter of Joel, he describes the locust horde again, only this time he puts it in imagery that makes it just like a human army full of warriors and chariots and horses. Verse 3, the land is like a garden of Eden before them. But after them, a desolate wilderness. Nothing escapes them. Verse 9. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb up into houses. They enter through windows like a thief. And then in verse 11, he describes it as the army of the Lord. The Lord utters his voice before his army. For his host is exceedingly great. He that executes his word is powerful. So this locust horde is the army of the Lord. And then for the third time, he describes this locust horde as the advanced troops of the day of the Lord. At the end of verse 11, for the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? So far then, what we learn from this book is that God is fighting against his people for some reason. And he doesn't tell us the reason. That's one of the most strange things about the book of Joel. The sins of the people are not cataloged. Which probably means that Joel's intention is for us to learn from these three chapters something about God and not so much about us. He is fighting against his people, but the question then arises, is only destruction in his mind? Is that his intention? And the answer comes, I think, in verses 12 to 14, where the Lord speaks. Yet even now, says the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping and with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and repents of evil. Who knows? whether he will not turn and repent and have a blessing or leave a blessing behind him. A cereal offering and a drink offering for the Lord our God. So even though he has threatened destruction in the impending day of the Lord, yet he holds out the opportunity for repentance and salvation at the eleventh hour. If they will repent... 
he will repent. If they will rend their hearts, he will cease to rend their land. And so in verses 15 to 17 of chapter 2, Joel calls again for a day or a season of fasting. The priests respond by praying, evidently. Praying that God will not make his heritage a byword among the nations. And God's jealousy is appealed to for his holy people. And in verse 18, he responds. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. He turns away from judgment and the climactic day of the Lord, which had been so near, withdraws into the distant future. And verses 25 to 27 show what God is really after in fighting against his people. I will restore to you the years which the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I, the Lord, am your God and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. The ultimate aim of God in the locust horde that came against his own people is to secure their undivided allegiance to him as God alone. You shall know that I am Yahweh. I am your God and there is none else. Evidently then the cause of this locust plague was that the people's devotion to God was only half-hearted. Some of their affections evidently were going out and attaching to other things in the world and there was no all-consuming fire for God in their hearts. And he fought against them. He sent his locust plague against his own people for there are few things more dishonoring to God or dangerous to us than an allegiance to God that is only half-hearted. So that's the first half of Joel's prophecy. And now the question arises, what next? He had said that the day of the Lord was near, but then God repented. The judgment did not fall in its final form. What becomes of it? Well, it must have been near, not in the sense that it had to happen soon, because clearly it didn't as the second half of the chapter makes known. But it was near, I think, and I would commend this to you as the way to understand the nearness of our Lord, too. It was near in the sense it was on the brink of happening. The conditions were ripe. The troops were amassed just on the other side of the border. They could have broken through at any time. The trumpet was to the lips. When the commander lifted his hand and made peace with his rebellious people and stayed, they're still close, 
it is still near in the sense of all those conditions being there, but it has withdrawn for an unspecified season. And the second half of the book of Joel, the prophet lifts up his eyes and by the inspiration of God looks far to the future and he sees two things coming. A great spiritual outpouring and a horrid judgment on the nations who reject God. Verse 28 describes the former. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams and your young men will see visions. Sometime in the future, Joel sees that a time of overflowing spiritual blessing is going to be added to this material prosperity that he had just promised as a result of restoring what the locusts had ruined. But that benefit that's coming is coming only for those who call upon the name of the Lord. And that emerges as we see the day of the Lord described in verses 30 and 32. And I will give portents in the heavens and on the earth blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be delivered. So Joel sees two things coming in the future. There's coming a great spiritual outpouring upon all those who call upon the name of the Lord. And there is coming a time of terrible divine judgments. In the past, he fought against his people to bring them to salvation. In the future, he is going to fight against the nations in judgment because they have refused his salvation offered in the gospel of the Lord Jesus. So the final world in judgment is described then in chapter 3, first verses 1 and 2. Behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there. The word Jehoshaphat means Jehovah judges. Jehoshaphat. That means that there's coming a day when God is going to vindicate his name by assembling the nations who have spurned his name and bring destructive judgment upon them. You can see this again in verse 12. Let the nations bestir themselves and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the nations round about. And then verse 14 gives a slightly different description of this valley. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision for the day of the Lord. Here it is again for the last time. The day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Now that, that word, that phrase, the valley of decision, does not mean that people are assembled to make a decision. It means that people are assembled to experience the decision that the Lord has made. It is the valley of verdict. It is Jehoshaphat Valley. The Lord judges. The Lord decides. The Lord's decision will be announced and it will be destruction upon all those who have rejected the gospel and gone their own way. Verdict Valley 
is a good translation. So Joel looks to the future with two sides. Salvation and blessing for all who call upon the name of the Lord. Which Paul, of course, quotes and Peter quotes. That's the gospel. And the other side is that there's going to be a worldwide judgment upon all the nations and all the people in those nations who have rejected the Lord. And the contrast comes out and is described in 16 to 21 of this last chapter. Let me just read verse 16 to highlight this contrast. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth shake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So at the end of the age, when the day of the Lord comes, everyone in this room will meet the Lord either as a roaring lion to devour or as a quiet refuge of delight. Now, just as in the first half of the book, the purpose of God was given at the end in chapter 2, verse 27, namely, you shall know, you shall know that I, the Lord, am your God and there is none other. So the second half of the book draws to a close and the purpose of God is stated again in verse 17 of chapter 3. So you shall know, in view of all that's happened, that I am the Lord your God. So the purpose of God in the locust horde and in the day of the Lord is that he alone be exalted over the nations and that every knee bow and confess that he is God in our midst. Well, that's the overview of this book now. And so the question I want to finish with is, what is its message for us today, these many centuries later? And I have four things that I think we need to take to heart from this book. First, let us never lose sight that God's purpose in history, from grasshopper swarms to worldwide judgment to the dissolution of sun and moon, the purpose of God in all that he does is that he might be exalted as God in the eyes of the world. You shall know that I am the Lord in the midst of Israel and that I, the Lord, am your God and there is no other. If we're God's people, that's going to be our aim too in all that we do. The American church is weary, weary, I think, with having man and his relationships and his feelings and his self-concepts at the center of attention for so long. We are bored with the very unamazing results of standing in front of the mirror of psychology and anthropology and sociology. And it is time that at least in the church we put our eyes and keep them there to the telescope of theology where God is at the center and the periphery 
and all in all, untold numbers of your puny personal problems that occupy so much of your and my attention would be swallowed up if we could but learn to stand atop the Mount Palomar of God's divine revelation and focus our eyes on the God whose purpose it is to be God in the universe and before whose unutterable majesty every knee will bow, whether in heaven or on the earth or under the earth. If we could stand there, keep our eye to the telescope, so much would vanish out of our lives that ruins it right now. My prayer as we study the prophets this fall is that we will see the God of the prophets. Love the God of the prophets. Lift up the God of the prophets instead of being so occupied with us and our feelings and our relationships and our concepts of how we view our little selves. And I want the word to spread at Bethlehem. They've got a Big God. So the first point that I want us to remember is in everything God does, from the movements of grasshoppers to the destruction of the sun and moon, His aim is to be exalted in our midst and to have our wholehearted allegiance. Second, If our hearts, and here I'm addressing believers, if our hearts begin to wander from this God, He will fight against us. Now, I I have experienced this in my own life many times. When I become proud, self-confident, And prayer starts to feel unnecessary. God clogs my way. He brings me down. Things go sour at home. Tensions build at work. Everywhere I turn, there is no joy and fulfillment. He fights against me. He clogs my way. He frustrates my day. Why? He is a jealous God and will have me 100%. Or not at all. It says in chapter 2, verse 12, Return to me with all your heart. Isn't that then what he's fighting for? He fights against us until He has all our heart. He will not be worshipped lukewarmly. He will not have half-hearted believers. He will turn on you and fight you if you only give Him half your heart. A little peace on Sunday. A little peace before you eat and maybe a little peace before you go to bed. He won't have it. He will fight you in His love for you. Until he gets your whole heart. Hosea. The great prophet we're going to look at the last Sunday of 1982. Says like this. 
He describes the people of Israel as the bride of God. And the bride begins to go after other lovers. What does God do? Hosea 2.6 Therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns. I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. She shall seek them, but they shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will return to my first husband, for it was better with me then than now. Isn't God great to fight us when we go after other lovers? His purpose is to be God alone in our midst, and He will fight us if He is not. Third, therefore, I simply do what Joel did in chapter 1 and pass it along to you and admonish that you... Rend your hearts and not your garments. Lament. Be ashamed. Wail. Declare a fast. Cry to the Lord for mercy. Turn from your sin that you cherish and that makes you guilty every day because you cling to it and won't let it go. Return to the Lord because there is this matchless promise here in verse 13. The Lord is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Don't be bitter at God when He clogs your way and frustrates your day. He only fights you for your good. He wants you to drop it and take hold of Him. Turn and kiss the rod of God and He will become your gentle shepherd. And finally, the last admonition. Let us pray earnestly that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit promised in 2.28 would happen. Now I know that Peter on the day of Pentecost takes this text and says this. The day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out. This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. But folks, we just got a foretaste of the powers of the age to come. We have a little down payment of that promise. How many old men are there among us who are dreaming dreams of God? How many young men are there among us who are having visions of God? How many men and women are being filled with the spirit of prophecy and delivering words from the Lord to each other? Has the prophecy been finished and completed at Bethlehem? Has the word of Moses in Numbers 11.29 been fulfilled? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put His Spirit upon them all? Is that Bethlehem? And if not, let us pray. Let us go to our knees, declare a fast, and beseech the Lord that He would pour His Spirit upon this church. For it is not complete and it will come. And we know it is not complete also because Israel, physical Israel, the invaders of Lebanon, 
are not believers and therefore do not have the Spirit of the Lord. And yet the Lord promises in Joel, in Romans 11, Israel will one day be converted. Israel will one day accept her Messiah. And Israel will one day have a great outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon her. And therefore let us pray not only for Bethlehem, the church of Jesus Christ, but for those beyond the Israel of God, that they too might be converted and experience this great blessing. And then, when the day of the Lord comes, we will stand under the refuge of the Lord with incomparable joy and confess that God alone is the Lord in our midst.